This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and my guest today is Rick Brown. Rick Brown is a brilliant political consultant. I knew him when he was the Victorian director of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy during the 1999 referendum. His advice was absolutely superb. Victoria was the state where we thought we were the weakest, and that was uh, demonstrated in the referendum figures. We won it, but we, we didn't win it by a large margin as we did in some other states. And the advice that Rick gave in relation to how we should uh, contest the matter, and in particular, he came up with the, the most cutting slogan. Slogans are very important. They're not just empty words, they contain enormous truths which are then concentrated in just a few words. And his slogan, which was really a winning slogan, and the Republicans recently said as much in the Sydney Morning Herald that this was the killer slogan. And uh, this was vote no to the politicians' republic. Vote no to the politicians' republic. I remember doing a doing an interview with John Howard. He said, well, I had reservations about that, I suppose because it's a politician, but it, it, it demonstrated to people that uh, this was a republic in which the politicians would have some of the checks, significant checks and balances removed from them. It wasn't a real republic. Now, uh, Rick, uh, just talking about the republic, what's your feeling about uh, whether we're going to have a second referendum on a republic? Uh, I, I, uh, I have a, a bias about this, David, uh, which, which is broad, broadly this. Uh, I think cultural issues are generational issues. And just because uh, one generation focuses on a particular issue, uh, in my mind, it is not inevitable that following generations will. Uh, Immediately after the 99 result, uh, those in favour of a republic were saying, well, we'll have one within five years, or alternatively, they were saying, uh, all we've got to do is wait for Queen Elizabeth uh, to die, and uh, King, Charles, King Charles will be so unpopular that a republic will be inevitable. And I said to people uh, who w were opposed to a republic, uh, in my view, that wasn't self-evident at all, uh, that uh, it was just as likely that the uh, that by the time the next generation came, they'd be focused on something completely different. And that's exactly what we have now. I mean, we have gone from republic uh, through to gay marriage. We we've now got voice. Uh, we've got gender identity coming down the tracks. And by and large... Um, it's the same group of people who fundamentally support all of these causes. So if you went out today to um, activists who are jumping up and down about gender identity and said, what do you think about a republic? They would probably tell you they weren't interested you know, or whatever. I, I, I think the I think they're generational issues. Uh, what interests me is I think that all of these issues are underpinned uh, by, a, if you like, a common philosophy. And and that's the eternal, the, the underlying philosophy. And that underlying philosophy, in my view, uh, 
is liberalism. Uh, it goes back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I think that it is those fundamental ideas that manifest themselves in different forms, in the forms of different issues. So uh, the answer to your question is, uh, I, I, don't think it, I don't think another vote on the Republic is inevitable at all. Um, and uh, I would think, uh, I would think not likely. Uh, cultural issues just keep coming generation by generation. I would agree, I think, uh, particularly as the government has hitched it to the voice referendum. The voice referendum is something they really want to get up. They're less concerned about the Republic referendum, although they have a number of people in the party who are pushing them on it. But even the Australian Republican movement has also taken a similar attitude. They're more concerned about the voice referendum now than the Republic. Uh, I, I suspect, in fact, I've felt this all along, they're going to lose, probably lose the voice referendum, which will kill off the Republic referendum. Uh, there, You listed a number of matters which you see as generational. Do you see also uh, what used to be called global warming, but because it would now be called in your city and mine global freezing, they now call it climate change. Is that also a generational issue? Uh, I think uh, the environment, the envir of all of them, uh, the environment's had the greatest longevity. Uh, you will remember, as well as I, as far back as the 60s, the predictions we had of doom and gloom. You know, the, the, the war was going to run out of food. Um, I mean, all sorts of predictions were made in the 60s. Uh, none of them have ever come true. The, uh, you know, the, the, we were going to be consumed by gr growing world populations and all the rest of it. Um, and I've still got books uh, uh, written by uh, 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 people like Paul Ehrlich and whose names nobody remembers anymore. Uh, so the interesting thing to me about, about that is, uh, one, it's its longevity, but it's secondly, uh, it's, it's its longevity despite if you like, proven failure. You know, that decade after decade, predictions have been made. They've never come to fruition. The people making predictions have never been held account to account for them. I mean, let's go back to the early 2000s with global warming. I mean, the fact was, in Australia, in the early 2000s, there was a drought. And it was a long drought. But droughts in Australia are not uncommon. And the Federation drought and was a long drought. one, wasn't it? Well, well, and long droughts are not uncommon. Mm. But you know, just look at the price that there's taxpayers we've paid for this. We have desalination plants in Victoria, Sydney, and I don't know where else. They are white elephants. They cost the taxpayer a fortune to construct at the time. In the case of Victoria, they're costing the taxpayer money every year because it's cheaper to turn these things over than to turn them off. And nobody talks about it. I mean, demonstrable failure. So, so what's the response to that? Well, we change the jargon from global warming to climate change. And we march on. These it's are, amazing, really. Is these dogmas that come in seem to be coming from America. Uh, there's a wonderful <laughs> book by Mark Levine, 
he calls it American Marxism. And he says all of these are associated. They're all coming from Marxists who are really there to destroy Western society. Uh, I like to call a spade a spade. I think this is communism. It's not the state communism of those communists in power. It's, the, it's what Lenin called a left-wing communism, an infantile disorder, as Lenin said. And they seem to be coming in regularly. This one, for example, of uh, gender dysphoria. This seems to be something which is so ridiculous and so unrelated to science and so abusive of children. I find it just completely incomprehensible how politicians are taking it uh, and actually acting on it. Um, from my point of view, David, uh, as you know, I've, I've taken an interest in communism for a long time. And the uh, I worked in anti-communist unions for 10 years and I got caught up in student politics for, for a couple of years. Uh, and fundamentally, it was about fighting communism. Uh, the um, I th I think that uh, I, I think I, th I think it's more I think the issue is more complex than what people think. Uh, I think the first difficulty is that most people equate communism with Marxism, and and in my view, that's wrong. Uh, I think that uh, it, people who assert that Marxism has failed, I think are right. Uh, if you define Marxism as economic determinism, which is what, what Karl Marx's theory was, which essentially is that uh, that everything flows from the control of the means of production, uh, then I think that that has been discredited. Uh, but I think that uh, the person who has succeeded is not Karl Marx at all. It's a fellow called Antonio Gramsci. Uh, Gramsci was a founder of the Italian Communist Party. And, uh, and, and without doubt, uh, communism's greatest theoretician. Uh, Gramsci grasped very early, uh, I mean in the 20s, that, uh, that economic determinism as a political move, regardless of its economic merit, would not prevail outside Russia. And the reason he grasped that was that the that Russian society uh, at the time of Karl Marx was what an American communist, Paul Sabah, has described as pre-capitalist. In, in other words, it was a feudal society. And the it was not as developed as Europe at the time. It wasn't as complex. Uh, the intervention of the state in the economy in Russia was much greater than elsewhere. And it was uh, Gramsci who coined the term cultural hegemony. Uh, Gramsci talked about what he called social positioning. And Gramsci said that the failure of Marx to succeed, and the reason Marx could never succeed, was that outside Russia, what we now call the establishment as defined by that fellow in the spectator in the 1950s, uh, what we now call the establishment basically was able to control society by mechanisms other than or in addition to economics. So he, it was Gramsci who latched onto 
the influence of churches, education, media. And this was back uh, back in the 30s. The, um, and the, he said that the capitalist state was made up of two entities, uh, the economy uh, in which you could exert influence through compulsion and what you and I would describe as culture or, or political society, in which he said that the establishment basically exerted control by consent. They persuaded us all that it was in our interests to go along with their model, fundamentally. And they did that through gaining control of, of they had control of the churches, the education system, the media. And Gramsci's theory um, in the 1960s was marketed by the German communists and a German student leader under the name The Long March Through the Institution. That was Rudy Deutschke, was it? Is that his name? Yes. And, and that's a yes. wonderful summary, isn't it? You, are, you understand it immediately. The Long March Through the Institutions. And then, but what you've then got to do is you've got to attach that to Rousseau. Because it's not what Gramsci's contribution, if you like, is organisational method. Uh, Gramsci identified the underbelly. But the ideas that, say, the Woke Brigade are presenting aren't Marxist. They're, they're just straight Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau's proposition is that inherently we are all born perfect, that we are corrupted by everything around us, by family, by society, by churches, that the only pure th experience we have is feelings, and therefore everything we do ought to be governed by our feelings. So that's and contrary, if, I, if yeah. I could interrupt you, that's contrary to the Christian view of original oh, no, sin. The, yes, very much so. We, yes, very the, much so. The Christian view is that we have a, an inherent weakness which we must yes. overcome, we must seek grace for it, and that's original sin, whereas Rousseau says, no, you're perfect. And, and it's not just Christian. Basically, Marx also said that, did he not? Marx said that you're perfect, I mean, yes, provided it, you belong to the right class. If, if you keep going through, from Rousseau onwards... Um, the one thing that most of the intellectual thinkers who've been influenced by Rousseau have had in common is that they're all atheists. There's a pattern here. It's quite, it's, it's quite consistent. You know, Marx was an atheist, Lenin was an atheist. Uh, you, you go through pretty well all, all of them. Uh, Freud, atheist, yeah, there's the whole string of them. Uh, the, um, and it's just one of the things they've got in common. But, you see, it's not just Christianity that holds this view. I mean, if you take um, animism, for example, if we talk about Africa, now fundamentally I mean, the role of the witch doctor really flows from the notion, if you think about it, that humans are not perfect. So th this, this idea of humans being flawed is not unique to Christianity. It's a view that's been shared by most sort of moral, supernatural movements uh, for years. I mean, Confucianism, for example, I mean, that's not religious. But Confucianism is not based on the notion that humans are perfect. Uh, this, this notion, this idea of humans being perfect, uh, I mean, it's been, been around since, you know, since whenever, since, since the Greeks. But um, 
but up until now, it hasn't had ascendancy. We now live in an era in which this notion uh, that we are inherently perfect, fundamentally via Rousseau, has gained ascendancy. You know, it's all about me. You know, I, I am an autonomous person. I don't need anybody else to make decisions for me. Do you think that's a prevailing view today, among a, a cultural view among the young? Uh, I don't think so much the young. Uh, Perhaps the old, you know, like me. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no, it, it, it's inner suburbs and outer suburbs. Oh, you, you, the, uh, you actually, can I interrupt you? You did that brilliantly for us in the 1999 yes. referendum. You foresaw yes. what happened because we prevailed everywhere except in the inner cities. Yes, yes. Well, you see, it's interesting. Uh, the So the Republicans, the, face, the Republicans were the villains. <laughs> yes. But the you, but the but ARM Republicans, going. I mean. But keep going. Where, where is the stronghold of the woke brigade? Inner suburbs. Where, where was the stronghold of the gay marriage brigade in a suburbs? That's true. This is my point. This is my point. It's, it's, it's the culture of the inner suburbs. Now, the... And, and, the, and the, the Liberals have... If I can interrupt you again, the Liberals have lost many of those seats to the Teals. I now live in... I'm now <laughs> represented by a Teal MP. I live in an inner suburb of Sydney and... Uh, yes. The, the teal lady now represents me, presenting views with which I disagree fundamentally. But but, but stay with stay with the liberals, and stay with Labor. And um, and, and could I could I interrupt you on that? Yes. You you have been uh, writing wonderfully about the state of the Victorian Liberal Party, have you not? Yes. And well, uh, it's, see, it's 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 all part of a pattern. Mm. Uh, the. Um, you see, let's just stay stay with the um, for a minute. Uh, this gulf between uh, the inner suburban and outer suburban elites. I mean, that appears to be a relatively recent uh, development, but it's quite interesting. Uh, there's there was an American professor of history, James Hitchcock. Uh, he wrote a book in the early eighties called "What Is Secular Humanism." And in that book, he made the point that by 1776, that the majority of those who actually influenced the, the, the constitution of the USA were deists. And he... You mean argues, they, they believed in God? Yes, they believed in God. But, they weren't but necessarily they, but, Christians. But, they believed in God. No, no if, if they believed in supreme beings, a better way of putting this. Like the French, the French revolutionaries, uh, did they not uh, have a, a festival in favour of the supreme being uh, in Notre Dame? Well, well, link, link, link Rousseau, which is the French Revolution, to America, because the point that uh, Professor Hitchcock made uh, in the book is that the majority were deists that left to the elite in the United States at the time, America would have been a secular state. But the elites were a minority. And he said in the book, uh, Enlightenment ideas were actually held by a minority. But he actually talked about Enlightenment ideas. 
which takes us straight to France, of course. Mm. Um, so the links you're, you're making are, are quite valid, but the point is that there we are in the 1770s with fundamentally, if you like, you're in the suburbs and outer suburbs. Mm. And, and if you go back to the French uh, Revolution, if I could interrupt you, uh, yes, the, the yes. powers of the French Revolution came from a small elite in Paris, supported it's by the mob and completely against the views of the rest of France. But they dominated through a very through my, through terrorism, the reign of terror yes, but, but, in France. But again, it's, it's, it's elites. That, I mean, and then then you can go to the UK, uh, Europe generally. Uh, the um, fundamentally. Uh, my suspicion is that if anybody did an historical study, a cultural study, the um, of the degree to which there's ever been cultural homogeneity, my guess is there hasn't. My, my guess is you, you've you've always had this self-appointed group who th who think who think they they were the fountains of wisdom. Sometimes, though, does this work to? in the interest of good. For example, I refer to the situation in Britain, the, the people who yes. decided that, the, that slavery was wrong. Now, if you look at the new, even yes. the New Testament, there's no condemnation yes. of slavery as an institution, but there were Quakers and some Anglicans who saw yes. it as inherently wrong to have to own people, but they were able to persuade a whole nation of that. And uh, within a, a short period of time, they had the Royal Navy policing the Atlantic, stopping all nations from engaging in slavery. It's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting, David. Um, it's quite interesting with slavery. Um, and the question there, uh, again, you see, I, I'm, I uh, am very much a supporter of an idea of John Maynard Keynes, and it's not an economic idea. Uh, in the last chapter of his treatise on economics, uh, he says, uh, the power of vested interest is vastly exaggerated when compared with the gradual encroachment of ideas. And I think that's a, a very profound observation which has been, demo has been demonstrably proven. And he actually goes on and says, uh, and he was, and uh, Mr. Keynes wasn't a Christian. Um, he goes on and says, uh, essentially, for good or for evil, yeah, ideas prevail. Mm -hmm. Well, could you just again let me interrupt you? The fall of the Soviet yes. Union was that Reagan and Thatcher, Reagan particularly, uh, increasing the spending on armaments so that the Soviet Union eventually collapsed, or were there ideas? in Russia, which also brought that down? Uh, I think I think a combination. Uh, I think, first of all, there was an alliance between Reagan and a fellow called John Paul II. Oh, the Pope, and yes. I don't think, And I don't think the role of John Paul II can be understated in all of this. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it was John Paul II who went to the, the lines in Poland. And the... And I, I mean, I think it is probably, but but I know that the um, that would that there were advisors to President Reagan who were in regular contact with the Vatican. The uh, and the um, again, sort of, so in part, the answer to your question is uh, without doubt, 
uh, Ronald Reagan was critical, uh, more so than Margie Thatcher. More than, of course, because America was the powerful country, the most powerful country. Well, it, well, it was more than that. Um, it was that that President Reagan, either wittingly or unwittingly, and I think wittingly, uh, essentially set out to effectively bankrupt the, the Soviet Union through defence spending. I agree. You I think he was a very clever man. I think he, uh, he was always underrated by the media, but he was uh, I, I, he was uh, he was like like Trump has been underrated by the media. I think. Oh well, the, undoubtedly. See, you, you might remember in the eighties that there was an an enormous. Uh, political global battle about the installing of Pershing and cruise missiles mm. in Europe. Uh, and the truth of the matter is that the Soviet Union simply couldn't go with the states. And the Soviet Union actually mounted an international political campaign to try to prevent the installation of the Persian cruising missiles. And at the same time, um, they then launched a, a worldwide nuclear free zone campaign. And that was about uh, really uh, the Soviet Union's defence interest, interest and it was getting, keeping the Persian cruising missiles out of Europe and it was keeping, uh, trying to get American nuclear uh, nuclear submarines out of the Pacific. There was a huge campaign in the Pacific mm. uh, which was actually organised by a communist in Australia, a fellow called John Halfpenny. Oh, yes. Who was, uh, who was the Victorian Secretary of the Metalworkers Union. Uh, but he organised the Pacific campaign uh, on the nuclear free Pacific. But that, that, was, all, all, that was all about uh, essentially uh, trying to counter uh, Ronald Reagan, without doubt. So then, you, then you had John Paul too. Uh, and... Uh, I mean, well, well, John Paul II's moral authority is just self-evident, uh, but it, it was it was really that combination. He was an extraordinary pope, I think, uh, John Paul II. Oh, undoubtedly. He was, uh, oh, getting back to Australia before we just, I wanted to ask you a question about the Victorian Liberal Party. But before we do, you were very close, were you not, to Mr. Santa Maria, the uh, the great uh, yes, I, opponent I, 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 of communism? It, I. I uh, I worked. I worked uh, with. I was the um, director of a small think tank called Council for the National Interest, uh, and that included people like R. V. Parbo and Sir Charles Court, and, you know, Dan Leone Kramer, uh, and, and a few other people. Uh, but the catalyst for its formation was Bob, and the uh, and, and I worked with Bob for the last ten years of his life. He made a remarkable contribution, I think, to Australian history. He, 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 he was the strong standout person in relation to the fight against communism within Australia, was he not? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, Bob's, uh, Bob's story is very interesting. The, uh, he, he was, uh, when he was a university student, uh, he came to the attention of several people because it was in the 30s and it, you, you will remember uh, the Franco Wars and the um, and supporting Franco uh, was quite unpopular. There was a debate at Melbourne Uni 
uh, over the Spanish War. And Bob took the side supporting Franco in the debate uh, because basically it was Franco against the communists. I mean, that, that's what it was all about. So, so he, he took the side of Franco. And, um, and it, uh, from all accounts, uh, it was just, he, he's, his speech was just extraordinary from, from all accounts. I, I uh, had the good fortune to, to well, speak to a couple of people who were actually, who were actually there. Uh, and they said, that, yes. how fascinating. I, I remember we had a prelate in Sydney, uh, Sir Norman yes. Cardinal Gilroy. Cardinal Sir Norman yes. Gilroy, I've forgotten how you... Yes, how yes. You, what was the relationship between Gilroy and Santa Maria? Uh, the more critical question is what was the relationship between Cardinal Gilroy and Archbishop Mannix? The... Uh, the could I, sorry, Dave. One can talk for years about all sorts of things, uh, but the um, I, I'm a Protestant. I have to tell you before I say what I'm about to say. Mm. Uh, the um, I thought you were an Anglican. <laughs> yes, I'm on the Protestant side in the <laughs> Anglican Church. The uh, but the um, as I understand it, uh, what is called the split uh, actually had two quite separate influences. Uh, what's got to be remembered about the split is that the Bob Santa Maria was actually ap approached by Protestants in the 1940s to organise against the communists. This, this is to say Protestants who were union officials in the union movement because fundamentally they didn't have the wherewithal to beat the communists. And they actually approached... Uh, Bob Santa Maria, uh, on the basis that essentially uh, there was a significant proportion of Roman Catholics who were Irish and Italians, and th they permeated uh, the ranks of unions, and they provided a base uh, to organise against the communists, and th that was the rationale, and that, that's that's what happened. Uh, the um, but separately from that. Uh, there was actually a, as I understand it, there was actually a debate uh, inside the Roman Catholic Church. And that is, it, it persists. On the face of it, uh, Archbishop Mannix looked like a very authoritarian figure. I mean, that was his persona. But in fact, he, he wasn't. Uh, did he, could I, could I interrupt you on one point? Did he refuse a knighthood? Was he offered a knighthood? Because hmm. all they, the well, others well, accepted well, that, knighthoods, did they not? Gilroy well, 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 and... Let's put, it, let's, let's put it this way. I, I can't speak with certainty, but certainly that's the story. Hmm. Uh, the and, and it's a perfectly credible story because uh, given Archbishop Manning's history with the Irish... Uh, <laughs> accepting a knighthood would have, would have been a stretch. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I mean, he was caught up before he became to Australia. I mean, he really got it, got sent to Australia because he was too hot to handle for the Roman Catholic hierarchy, both in the Vatican and in Ireland. And that was because of his support for the Irish. I mean, he he, he was militant on, on that issue. The um, And... So, but you get back to the theological argument, and that is that 
Archbishop Mannix took a very strong view about the role of the laity and the independence of the laity. So he took the view there was a job for the clergy and there was a job for the laity and they were quite separate jobs. Uh, so, for example, uh, when it came to the decision, uh, when the when what are called the groupers got expelled from the Labor Party, and I mean, and after it's all over, everybody admits that they were expelled. Uh, the Bob went spoke to Archbishop Mannix and basically said that fundamentally the issue that was facing them was was whether they sort of split and set up a separate organisation. And uh, Archbishop Mannix said to Bob, that's your decision, not mine. This is a matter of record. Mm. And and Bob said, well, my view is we need, we need to split. And after Bob told Archbishop Mannix his decision, Archbishop Mannix then said to him, I would have done the same. And the split was really only in Victoria and Queensland, is that right? Well, largely, but this brings us to New South Wales. Mm. And that's where Gilroy was influential, was he not? This brings us to Cardinal Gilroy Mm. and, and, and the hierarchy in New South Wales. Uh, there were two, as I understand it, quite fundamental differences between uh, Sydney and Melbourne. And one was that the view of the hierarchy in Sydney was the Labor Party was the church's party and that nothing should be done to basically destroy the ALP in New South Wales. So that was a political argument against the split. But there was also a theological argument going on, and that was that the view of the New South Wales hierarchy was that the clergy controlled everything. So if there was any institution that had the name Catholic on it, then the clergy clergy were the decision makers. And that even included lay organisations. So, for example, uh, I had a friend who... who, uh, set up a, a, a lay workers' organisation uh, and basically uh, a priest was assigned as a chaplain mm. and essentially the priest insisted on making all the decisions. Uh, I mean, notwithstanding this, that he wasn't competent to this, do it. This, <laughs> this is an extraordinary period and I'm uh, taking you away, but it is so fascinating. Can I, before I know time is running against us, uh, you were going. We were going to speak about the extraordinary situation in the. It's not unrelated. The extraordinary situation in the Liberal Party in Victoria and the case of uh, Miss Deeming, which which yes. pr- follows that of uh, Bernie Finn. Bernie Finn, if if I understand the situation correctly, was expelled because he he argued too much against abortion. Is that not the case? Well, the, the, broadly, the answer is yes. Uh, the um, uh, Bernie is a very passionate, a, a very passionate pro-lifer. Bernie always has been, mm. and the um, and uh, Bernie's views around moral issues uh, were a large influence on his 
getting involved in politics. And so uh, Ber Bernie has never never resiled uh, from his views around pro-life issues and he's been very passionate about it. And the um, and if you like, and the Liberal Party, um, the Liberal Party for many years uh, basically took the view uh, that it was a party of diverse interests and all the rest of them. And, and 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 while many people found Bernie to be a pain in the neck, um, nevertheless, you know, the Liberal Party was not monolithic. Uh, but the uh, but it it is a sign of the times. Uh, the and it's quite ironic. The uh, basically the Liberal Party got the numbers to uh, not uh, re-endorse Bernie, but they re-endorsed Bernie with another Christian. Her name is Maura Deming. So she actually succeeded Bertie Finn. And presumably, I don't know, I mean, this is just pure conjecture, but presumably uh, those who were responsible for supporting uh, Maura Deming presumably thought that she would be less vocal and she went to yeah, the she went to the demonstration where the so-called yes. Nazis arrived. Were those Nazis real Nazis, or were they hired from some dramatic workshop? Do you think to look like Nazis? Uh, no, the, the, no, the, I, I accept. I accept they were real. Mm -hmm. The um, there's some there is some organisations called the um, I don't know the National Alliance or something or other. Um, the, and I I think they were members of that. So, so I, th I think they were real enough. And the police um, allowed them to go onto the steps of Parliament House I, I, and, yeah, and and behave yeah. as, uh, as with Nazi salutes and so on. The police allowed that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yes, that's right. And and that's but, right. but so, she had so, nothing to do with it. Did she? She wasn't right. involved in that. No, none of none, none of them were. So why was but she? None of the, the, she's been expelled, hasn't she? Yes, that's right. Uh, the. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the, first of all, although you wouldn't know from the media at the beginning, the rally was actually organised by feminists. And the, they were feminists who, if you like, are, are traditional feminists. Yeah, as, as in uh, our, our friend Rawlings, uh, yeah, women are women. Mm. I mean, that's, that's the essence of their position. <clears throat> and the... Um, they organised the rally. Uh, there were there was a transgender group there protesting. Uh, these twenty blokes in the in the Nazi uniforms marched in and gave started giving salutes and all the rest of it. And you then get the media coverage, which talks about sort of a neo-Nazi rally. Uh, clearly, what happened was that John Pesuto got spooked. He then the rally was on a Saturday. Uh, he called Maura Deming to a meeting on Sunday and basically wanted her to find science states and said she wasn't a neo-Nazi, she didn't condone neo-Nazis and, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and as I understand it, she said she wouldn't sign them because by signing it, it implied that she believed something she didn't. Yes, it suggests something in, that it was an issue and nobody, nobody, yes, yes. nobody seriously thought she was a Nazi, did they? Well, well, she had a personal history which was quite the opposite. Yes, and, and she and she took she took 
great offence to the suggestion that that she would be a Nazi sympathiser. Mm. That's at the heart of all of this. But you then look at the at what happened. Uh, there, it was guilt by association. It was um, uh, evidence. Um, evidence was an entry in Wikipedia about one of the organisers, uh, which was fallacious. There was no due process. There was no innocent until proven guilty. That that's that's what happened. Then um, the liberal the liberal parliamentary party basically divided into three groups. There was one group. And somebody from this group is actually quoted in the newspapers essentially saying there is no place in the Liberal Party for anybody who wants to change the laws on abortion and euthanasia. Now, abortion and euthanasia had nothing to do with the rally. I mean, Maura Deming's views are... Maura Deming's a Christian. Mm. So her views are quite clear. Uh, But she wasn't out there campaigning on abortion or euthanasia. But this bit in the Australian was no no place. It, this is a modern party. There's no place for people to hold these views. And she needs to be drummed out. Then there was a second group. Could, could I and, just interrupt uh, you there? What would Sir Robert Menzies think of that, the founder of the Liberal Party, that the Liberal, there's no place in the Liberal Party for people who are opposed to abortion and euthanasia? Um, Mr Menzies, on at least one occasion before he died, did not vote for the Liberal Party. He voted for the DLP, it is said, is it not? I, I think he did. Mm. Uh, the, um, I, I'd be fairly confident that he did. Mm. Uh, the, um, uh, uh, he told somebody I know that on, on one occasion he, he did not vote for uh, the Liberal Party uh, and uh, the person to whom he spoke uh, actually asked me years later if if I if I would see if I could v- validate that, and uh, I, I made inquiries, and I'm confident that was so. Uh, and I think probably on two occasions he did not vote for the Liberal Party. Let me tell you uh, uh, the, uh, before the uh, in the election in New South Wales, not the last one, the one before. Uh, the question of abortion, abortion law reform, wasn't mentioned in the election campaign. And abortion is free in New South Wales. It's easily available. But uh, once the parliament assembled, suddenly there was this urgent need for abortion law reform, supported by many, many prominent people in the Liberal Party. I think there was an independent who brought it in. And there was... Well, Gladys was right behind it. Yes, Extraordinary and no yes. need because it was it's freely available in New South Wales if you want to. But why is there this obsession, this obsession on the left by the neo-communists and all the others on the left? Why are they so obsessed with wanting to kill babies and old people and sick people? Because uh, I gather there's a case in South Australia where a very a very young person wanted to commit suicide and apparently it can be, it is authorised under the South Australian legislation. I, I, think, I, think, I think it's broader, David. I think, I think it's a philosophical issue. The, um, uh, you see, uh, you, you look at, just look at the pattern. Uh, you've got that there. Then you've got um, 
Then you've got uh, Victoria, uh, which has succumbed completely to the woke agenda. And, and it's and it's not just the um, it's not just the political parties. I mean, in Victoria, for example, about eighteen months ago now, a Christian was appointed as the CEO of an Australian rules football oh, yeah. He was sacked within twelve months because he was a Christian. Quite explicitly. This sounds like uh, Rome under Nero, doesn't it? Could I just interrupt you well, on well, that? Because we're, yeah. we, we don't have that much time, unfortunately. Uh, Tony Abbott has come out in an interesting afterword in a paper by, in a book, I think by David Stevens, published by, uh, by Connor Court. And uh, what, he, what he has effectively said, this is, this is Tony Abbott. He said, the Liberal Party yeah. has to be different. The Liberal Party has to be the anti woke party, not just a little way, not a little way, for example, in relation to climate change and global warming, but standing out and offering a real alternative to the Australian people, a common sense alternative to the Australian people, an older style Liberal Party, so that it's not just going to be very similar to the uh, left-wing Labor Party. I, I, I think the challenge, uh facing, uh, there are several challenges facing the Liberal Party, uh, uh, but I think one of them is this. Uh, John Howard uh, prosecuted the claim that one could, that, that it was possible to reconcile liberalism and conservatism, and he called it a broad church. Uh, now, I, I mean, I'll declare my hand, I'm a conservative. And I don't see how you can reconcile the views of Rousseau, as we've described them, with the views of Edmund Burke, who's considered to be the founder of conservatism. Uh, the, uh, there's a fellow called George Muellish, I think his name is. He's an academic at Wollongong University. And essentially, uh, he wrote a piece some years ago in which he said, this notion of a broad church was simply a political construct. It was simply a mechanism uh, to keep people with divergent views, and he said contradictory views, all in the one tent. In other words, it wasn't driven by ideological con conviction at all. Well, we saw that, didn't we, in, uh, in the referendum. The referendum was called uh, uh, Downer, Alexander Downer saw the solution. When, when Keating started talking about so-called republicanism, in which he'd shown no interest all his life except yes. uh, Irish Catholic uh, uh, republicanism, yes. but when he started talking about it, it was a wonderful way, and uh, Hazen, Bill Hazen, told yes. the Queen this in the letters that we've seen. He told yes. the Queen, this is yes. a great distraction from the big issues which might bring down yes. the Labour government, unemployment and so on. Yes. And then Keating realised it was a wonderful wedge because a number of yes. sillier Liberal MPs seeing the uh, Republican bandwagon, having been told by the media that it was inevitable, all then jumped on the Republican bandwagon. So we, Howard and Downer had a Liberal Party that was divided. The only way to bring it together was to offer a convention. Then, of course, you had to honour the decision of the convention and have a referendum. So the, we, we, we have seen very much how that worked. 
But this, but, but this outcome quickly they are. Um, when Alexander Downer was the leader of the Liberals back in the 1990s, he coined the term progressive conservative. Now, explain <laughs> to me. Just explain that to me. Uh, I, I the, think it's like the traffic in India. Everybody <laughs> drives on the right and the left. <laughs> or the traffic well, in then, old China. <laughs> then in 2007, it was John Howard who appointed Malcolm Turnbull the Environment Minister. Then, um, after... Then the, we saw what uh, he did with the water, when he split the water from the land and sold the water off yep. to the uh, international speculators. And, 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 we're st and we're still living with the consequences yes. of it. And uh, the consequences and of the French submarines and uh, Snowy Two and all those wonderful decisions taken by the Turnbull government. Rick, I'm terribly it's sorry. We've got a minute to go. <laughs> right. It's fine, but yes. So it's all yours. <laughs> so, uh, well, I, I, I simply think, David, uh, broadly, that um, that, in, that there are two things. Uh, people, in my view, need to focus on causes, not symptoms. That lots of the things we see around us are symptoms, that the causes, are, in my view, are philosophical, and that's what needs to be attacked. Uh, the second thing, I think, is this, that uh, I don't think that you can address cultural issues, which are ideas, through politics. I think politics responds to culture. I think that's a wonderful and statement. That... And I'm going to just finish yes. with a comment of mine. Uh, there's a saying attributed to Chester, and I think it is, a, it is very much reflecting what you say. And Chesterton is said to have said, and it's consistent with what he's written anyway, that when man, when man stops believing in God, it's not that he believes in nothing, it's that he will believe in anything. And I think that is a yes. wonderful summary. And that's the situation we have in the Teal electorates where I live. Religion is dead and they, they stupidly believe in anything. Uh, yes, that was true. Yes. I'm sorry we have to finish now because uh, I'm getting a signal. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. We must continue this another time because I'm sure the viewers find you as fascinating as I find you. And uh, I'm fine. so appreciative to you for what you did in the referendum because you were a very thank important you, person there. So thank you very much, Rick Brown. And, uh, Thanks, David. And I'll close the... Uh, this now, this no, is yes, Save the Nation and uh, ADH TV. I'm David Flint, and until next time, thank you. Bye, David.